At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Allison Duffy to talk about her experience with food preservation. Allison has been growing and preserving food for over 15 years. She is a master food preserver, trained through the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and holds a master's degree in gastronomy from Boston University. She has written about food for various publications, including the Boston Globe, Backpacker Magazine, and Taproot Magazine, as is the author of the book Preserving with Pomona's Pectin. She regularly writes and develops recipes for the Pomona Pectin Company and blogs at her own website, canningcraft.com. Plus, she teaches canning and preserving classes. Allison lives on several acres in mid-coast Maine with her husband, Ben, and their two young boys, where they tend an apple orchard, how cool is that, look after a way too big vegetable garden, take care of chickens, and put up as much food as they can manage. Welcome to the show today, Allison. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am happy to have you. I always love to talk about canning. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So, you know, food is one of those things that I've been interested in ever since I was little and did a lot of cooking and experimenting growing up. So when I, you know, was in my 20s, I finally had a little bit of extra space where I could start a vegetable garden, you know, it sort of was a no-brainer for me to start growing stuff, and and then that led to preserving for me because, you know, I had all this food, kind of taught myself how to do it initially through using books and and, uh, just, you know, learning whatever I could, and uh, so it was just something that I did because I loved to do it. And then that, you know, all the way along there, I was doing sort of some freelance food writing on the side um, from my uh, other work that I was doing unrelated to food. And that eventually led me to pursue a master's degree in gastronomy from Boston University, which was really 
a fantastic opportunity. It was focused on, you know, food from a cultural perspective. And it was really, it was really uh, an interesting few years when I did that. And then shortly after that, I had my two children. And through that process, you know, I was very kind of became more focused on less sort of the heady aspects of food and more on the kind of practical, tangible aspects. And so I kind of, you know, I had been preserving before, but I kind of got reinterested in it. And that's the time when I took the um, Master Food Preserver course through the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, which was really such a great opportunity and the right thing at the right time, because even though I had been preserving for a while, I was all self-taught. And so, you know, there were some things I wasn't so sure about. And so the course was really filled in all kinds of gaps, taught me all kinds of new new techniques and information uh-huh. and also ma- made me feel confident to kind of move to the next level with writing right. and teaching that sort of thing. So you use the words tangible and practical aspect to describe your interest in food and preserving and cooking. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's such a visceral activity. It's so physical. Um, I find that and I and I say it in comparison to where I was coming from previously when I was doing my graduate work, which was very much more academic, which I also really enjoyed. But, you know, the time in my life was one where I was really focused on the immediate. I had really young kids and it was very it was all about here and now and making meals and so that's what I, I guess that's one of the things that I love the most about preserving is that it is, it's just so, it's practical evidence in that it's useful. And it's just, you know, it's a very physical activity that you do. And I find that when I'm doing, engaged in that kind of activity, I'm just completely engrossed in what I'm doing. You yeah. know, I'm not thinking about all kinds of other things. And I really love that aspect of it. Yeah. Almost a meditation, huh? Absolutely it uh, is. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I know that Heidi and I, we cook dinner most nights together and it's, you know, it's an activity that we do and love to do together. So I got it. Cool. Yeah, it's great. It's a great family kind of thing for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about Pomona's. I have some history with Pomona's pectin. I actually love, love, love the product. How did you get connected with Pomona's pectin and then end up writing a book about it? Well, so interestingly, I was introduced to Pomona's during the Master Food Preserver class that I took. Mm-hmm. And so I tried it out and I was completely hooked after that because primarily because, I mean, not only is it easy to use, but for me, the big selling point is just that you have to use so little sweetener. And right. I, I love that. I mean, for me, that's the, the biggest reason that I love it. And, you know, I, I love being able to make jams and jellies with maple syrup and honey rather than sugar if I want to. Mm-hmm. So that's, I personally was, you know, immediately sold on it. And then as I started doing more teaching that's just what I used because I liked the product. Uh-huh. And then I also did, I did some appearances on a local television station where we, I made jam with the host of the show and I did several of those. And so I was using Pomona's because that's what I used. And so as it turned out, Mary Lou um, from Pomona's happened to come across, they already were in, I should back up to say they were already in um, discussions with a publisher about a book, but they didn't have anyone to write it. And oh my so gosh. She, yeah, so she happened to come across my um, my spot on the news station on television. Um, I well, she saw it online, of course, but but because I was talking about Pomona's, and mm-hmm. so that's how. So that's the publisher then contacted me, and we you know went from there. Nice. 
So it's called so, preserving, yeah. preserving with Pomona's Pectin. So tell us right. about the book. Well, so the book is basically how all the different, well, it's not all, but many, many things that you can, you can use Pomona's for. Now, we stuck with gams, jellies, uh, preserves, conserves, and marmalades. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the basic classic types of gelled products that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say there are more things you can do with Pomona's that we don't cover in here, like um, that I don't cover in the book, like um, you, know, you can make can't gel candies and that sort of thing. We didn't uh-huh. include those books. But so I um, broke it up into those um, categories that I mentioned of different types of gel preserved products. And there are, I believe it's 75 recipes that I came up with for this. And um, But before you get to the recipes, there's a whole long section on exactly what you need to do to make these recipes and to use the boiling water bath canner to can. So it's a big sort of primer on canning, on, on boiling water bath canning before you get to the recipes. Nice. And uh, a lot of color photographs, and mm-hmm. the publisher did a great job with that. Beautiful. So t- for those people that don't know what pectin is, and specifically Pomona's pectin, please tell us, would you? Sure. So pectin is sourced typically from the peels of citrus fruits um, or apples. So many jams and jellies, you can make pectin without an added jam, without, sorry, without an added pectin. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is um, the... Uh, for, this makes it a little bit easier to have a pectin that you can add. My personal opinion, um, the difference about Pomona's versus other types of pectin is that Pomona's is what's known as a low methoxyl pectin. Uh-huh. And what that means is that it jams with the addition of calcium or the presence of calcium uh-huh. rather than the presence of sugar. And that is a significant difference from most traditional pectins, what I call traditional pectins, mm-hmm. traditional added pectins, you, they require a tremendous amount of sugar to gel properly. That's just how the pectin works. Right. Whereas Pomona is, is different than that, and that's what Got I it. happen to really like about it. So, um, mm-hmm. so calcium is the gelling agent along with the pectin rather than sugar. That is correct. Oh, that is correct. I, you know, I add calcium every time, just like I'm supposed to, and I've always wondered what that was for. <laughs> yes. That is what it is for, and it, and interestingly, some you know some fruits have higher levels of calcium naturally than others, so that's right. why you don't always add the same amount of calcium yeah. um, when you're making the jam. But Excellent. pretty straightforward to use once you hang it. Yeah, exactly. So tell me about food growing and food preservation that you do personally for you and your family, because you you in in your bio it said a garden that was way too big. Tell me about that. <laughs> Okay, it might not be way too big for everyone, but I'll tell you it is for me. It's a um, it's a hundred by a hundred and feet. I'm speaking, um, hundred wow. feet by hundred feet, and yeah. and it's 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 pretty much you know I I do have help from other family members, but it's kind of my thing. It's mostly mostly me, and so I grow. You know, we've been expanding it over the years. I, it didn't it wasn't always this big, but that's where it's been for the last few years, mm-hmm. and. We've been in this our location here for about five years, so we've been going through a long process of you know um, amending the soil mm-hmm. and um, making it more effective. It was not ideal soil when we moved in, so it was very clay heavy. So we had a lot of work to do, but but we try to grow a lot of our kind of staple vegetables. I think of as staple vegetables, the things mm-hmm. that we like to eat all winter long. And I, as much as I love to grow sort of more fun things, I'm, I'm finding that because it's so much work, I'm definitely moving towards emphasizing the things that I really like to eat all winter. Yeah. Um, and the store well as well. Like what? So I grow a lot of kale, a lot of Swiss chard. We 
have more recently had success with onions and beets since we've um, made the soil more fluffier. Yeah, clay heavy, they did not do well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, and then we grow a lot of winter squash, grow a lot of tomatoes, green peppers, eggplant, leeks, gosh, green beans, cucumbers, whole lot. So, whole lot of different things. Potatoes. Potatoes. Yep. Do Do you just store the potatoes or do you can them? So the, the potatoes I store. Yeah. Um, in the root cellar, or uh, our makeshift root cellar, I should say. Right. You know, I'm yeah. I'm I'm a little jealous. I have uh, my lot here in Phoenix at the Urban Farm is thirteen thousand square feet, and I probably have realistically three to four thousand square feet of garden space. You have ten thousand square feet of garden space, and a yeah. root and a root cellar. Right. <laughs> well, not a, it, it, it functions that way anyway. We yeah. basically turned our damn cellar into something that works. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So a couple of questions about your list. Uh, for people yeah. that don't know, what is the difference between a winter squash and a summer squash? And you don't grow winter squash in the winter and summer squash in the summer, do you? That's right. No, that's correct. <laughs> you, um, you do not. Um, so, yeah, they're all summertime crops. But so the winter squashes are the hard, what you think of as the hard, the harder squashes, yeah. like the orange, the orange squashes, the butternuts, the pumpkins, the acorn squashes. And they, I imagine they're called winter squashes just because they store through the winter. I actually am right. not sure about that, but that's my assumption. That would make why sense. they call them winter squashes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the summer squashes are the zucchinis and the yellow squash and the other types of soft-skinned squash that look kind of like zucchini. And those, you know, those don't last uh, in a root cellar in the way that other right. other uh, uh, squashes do. Yeah. Though I should clarify, um, in storing winter squashes, I don't actually put those in the root cellar because those like slightly drier drier, warmer conditions than our base. So the other thing you mentioned that you said you grow a lot of is kale. And kale grows voraciously here in Phoenix as well, actually all through the winter here. And, you know, I've dehydrated some of it and, you know, we have it practically every night in, you know, some kind of braised green dish that we do. Uh, Do you can it? How do you preserve kale? I, so- I do not can it. You you can can it, but I, I freeze it. So what we do is um, I blanch it huh? and chop it up, remove the stems, and put it in the freezer bags. And then it's and then we usually saute it super easy once, you know, to pull out for a meal. Basically just throw it in a you know, a, a saute pan with garlic and olive oil uh-huh. and it's fantastic. And it's, you know, and it, it what's what's so nice about it too is that it's halfway prepared already. Right, <laughs> so exactly, really, exactly. Yeah. When, when you say blanch, that's a preserving process. What do you mean? Okay, so um, many vegetables before you freeze them, you blanching is a process of submerging them in boiling water for a very short period of time. It depends on how uh, what it's usually two to three minutes, depending on the kind of vegetable uh-huh. that you are that you're preserving. The reason for that is that um, so so basically you. You blanch the vegetable in boiling water, then you submerge it in cold water very quickly to cool it down, uh-huh. and then you freeze it. And the reason for that is that the blanching process stops the enzymes um, from working, uh, so that the so it breaks down more slowly in the freezer. Yes. Basically, you'll have a fresher product for longer um, if you blanch it. God, it I can get it can get a little mushy. Um, yeah, I didn't actually. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes. So. How, how long do you blanch? Because I'm going to go do this now. How long do you blanch kale for? So 
I always, I honestly, I always look it up whether it's two or three, but I think kale is two minutes. Got it. I think, I think they're very, I think they're just a few of the green vegetable. I think it's like collards that might be three minutes. Uh-huh. Most everything is two. Two. Except for really big Brussels sprouts, you might do three, but but basically two minutes in boiling water. But the idea, too, is that once you put it in the boiling water, you want to bring it back up to a boil as quickly as possible so you can't put a whole lot in at once All or right. you need a really big pot. So I actually do, when I do blanching, generally I do it outside on one of those propane burners so I can use my very large canning pot, even though I'm not actually canning, it's just a huge pot that I have so that I can have a large quantity of water so uh-huh. I can bring it back to a boil quickly. Right. And yeah. then it's equally important to submerge it in cold water for a few minutes to cool it, cool it down quickly too. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah we just uh, we just got a five gallon, is that a twenty quart? Yeah. Stainless steel um, cooking pot for you know doing things just like this. So. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I love those. <laughs> Can't have enough of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. you you've involved your husband and children uh, in this process. You know, how are they involved? So well, you know, for Ben and I, it's really a, a this whole our whole homestead here is a, a joint effort for sure. You know, the vegetable garden happens to be mostly my thing, uh-huh. but Ben does almost Ben does most of the work with our apple orchard. Oh. So, and he also has, he also has done a lot of the heavy lifting with the preparation of the garden too. Uh-huh. You know, the soil amendments and all that. So, we have we're in an old farmhouse um, from built in 1812. So, as a result, there's a um, some very old trees here. Uh-huh. So, there was an old apple orchard. We probably have like 40 trees that not not that we're picking apples from all of them, but that they were kind of buried and hidden among the brush. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, so there's, you know, they're in various states of falling down, and we've been slowly, since we've been living here over the past five years, um, in the process of revitalizing those trees. And Ben has really done the vast majority of that, and he's done a lot of pruning and grafting and all that to try to bring the trees back to producing well. Uh And we've made some progress, so we've gotten some years we have gotten an excellent harvest other years not nearly as much but we've they produce a remarkable amount considering that um they're really old trees nice so, nice. so, um, so you yeah. have a, you have an abundance of apples what do you do with those we do um so we do a few different things i make i would say the, the biggest thing that we do is make cider oh nice. so we yeah we press we um we press out a lot of uh, gosh this past this past fall was not a good apple year we didn't get that much this year the year before we pressed out about 80 gallons so some of that a lot of that we froze in just regular you know regular the same kind of uh, containers that you buy at uh, at the store in Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of we froze I canned a bunch of it uh, in mason jars and then we also fermented a bunch of it too so that's so that's what we did with the cider and then additionally I made tons of applesauce so that and that that works really well because our apples are because you know we don't spray the trees they definitely have you know blights not not a blight as in a sickness but like they've got you know they're not perfect apples blemishes right. I guess is yeah blemishes blemishes so as a result they're not great for eating they taste good but they're not the kind of thing you just want to pick up and bite right except when you're out <laughs> picking to taste them but in the orchard but so I do a lot of making sauce and then I dehydrate a lot of them too which. I love doing. They're so good that way. Yeah, so, apple um, chips. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So, how are the kids involved in the growing, harvesting, and preserving? And what do they think of it? And actually, how old are they? So they are eight and ten, two oh, boys. Uh huh. And so they 
they do quite a bit, and it's interesting. It really, well, I, I should say quite a bit. They don't do the sort of really heavy lifting, but they but they help out on a regular basis when I ask them to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're self-motivated to do it. Other times they don't want to do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like, you know, okay, just the same kind of, you know, you've got to make your bed. Okay, you've got to help me pick green beans today. So we there's definitely, I would say it, probably it's more that, you know, in the summertime I'll say, mm-hmm. okay, I really need help for an hour doing, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing in the garden. Right. And, but then there are other times when they both get totally into it. And like my older one, older son really wanted his own garden last, last Ooh, year. So he nice. He the bed on his own and planted what he wanted. And, you know, it got mostly covered with weeds, but that's okay. He was pretty excited when he did still get some vegetables despite the weeds yeah. and all. So uh-huh. he was, he was excited about that. And, um, and, and along those same lines, and I, I, I definitely notice a trend with them, particularly my older one, that if it can kind of be his, he's more interested in it. Uh-huh. So, for example, we just tapped our maple trees um, just last weekend um, to make maple syrup. And uh, so he really wanted his own tree this year, that he could tra- tap himself and boil uh-huh. down himself and all. So that, that seems to be a motivating factor for him. Yeah. But then with the actual preserving part, they both do a lot of that. We, um, you know, for really since they were little, we've been, you know, they help to increasing degrees as they get older. Um, they make a lot of jams. They help me with, you know, blanching the green beans and, you know, they help me with a lot of it. Yeah. So, I, and it's, it's a really nice way to just to be together, I think. Right. As I said, they don't always love it. <laughs> but when we're in a good place, it's, it's a really nice way to be together. So. Yeah. What's, what's, what difference is it going to make for them in their lives? You know, I kind of feel like, you know, they're going to know where the food came from. You know, I mean, that's, that's you know, the sort of the simple a simple answer, I guess, yeah. um, but an important one. You know, they're going to know where it came from. They're no, they're, they know what goes into growing it. You know, it just doesn't magically appear. Right. And I think they'll appreciate the hard work of growing it. And my hope, I, you know, I don't know this, but I think about the things that I was had to do as a kid that I didn't always love uh-huh. that I really appreciate as an adult. And I'm hoping that they'll think of gardening that way and, and preserving their own foods that way. You know, they'll think, well, oh, yeah, right. I see why mom had us do all this now. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that's how they'll think of it. But I just think it's a really important life skill to be able to yeah. know how to do it, if, you know. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Yeah. So talking about food preservation, what happens for me in my mind is food preservation is canning. And there is so much more to it. So can you kind of... Uh, tease apart this whole notion of food preservation? Sure. So, you know, there are a lot of different methods for preserving food, and there are usually a couple different methods that can work for an individual food, but I found just from personal experience that certain kinds of food I like to preserve with one method, Mm -hmm. and other kinds of food I like to use another method. Mm -hmm. Some of it's just personal preference, some of it's based on kind of the nature of the food itself. So... So they're all, you know, as I see it, they're all good options for putting food away to eat for later. And you just have different methods and tools to do it. So what are those methods? Canning is certainly a big one. Yeah. There is boiling water bath canning and there is pressure canning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so boiling water bath canning is um, what you use. The, the kind of foods that you can boiling water bath can are anything that is considered high acid, which means that it has a pH of less than 4.6. Now, what that means, practically speaking, that would be with your salsas, um, chutneys, pickles, dilly beans, jams and jellies, most most all of them. Mm-hmm. 
And so those those are all the kinds of things that can be um, boiling water bath canned. So those are great foods for people to start canning with if they haven't done this before. Right. They're, um, because boiling water bath canning is 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 easy to get into. Uh, it takes less equipment and. And those are foods that most people like. So right. they're kind of, you know, your nice kind of fun, fun on the side sort of foods. They're not sort of the nuts and bolts staple foods necessarily. Uh-huh. So that's boiling water bath canning. Then there's uh, pressure canning. And that is for anything that is considered a low acid food, which is uh, with a pH of greater than 4.6. And that would be if you were canning vegetables that didn't have any added acid. So soybeans, mm. beans, for example, have added vinegar, which makes them a high acid food. However, if you were to can green beans by themselves with ah. just water, they would be a low acid food and, that, and you would need to pressure can them. Also, any meats, basically um, meats, dairy products, anything other than acidified vegetables or fruits uh-huh. um, need pressure can. Uh, I, have a mm-hmm. que- I have a question for you on that because I have a pressure canner and yeah. I pretty much just pressure can everything. Is there something wrong about that? You know what? That's funny. I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I've yeah. never done that though. Hmm. But I don't see why there would be a problem with it. It's just that you don't have to with the with the high acid stuff. Right. Right. All right. Cool. So it, that that's canning or jarring. So and we talked about dehydrating. Uh, yes. What else is there? So so the big one for me that I probably do the most of um, on a personal level is freezing. Yeah. And that's primarily because I prefer, you know, I should back up, most of most of what we make is kind of the real staple vegetables that I like to have all winter. So green beans and broccoli and Swiss chard. And I prefer those frozen. Mm-hmm. So that's why I do it that way. Yeah. Um, so rather than pressure canning them. So freezing is also really easy to, um, you don't have, you know, unlike with canning where you do have to make sure you, you, you know, you, you have to make sure you've got the right kind of canner to, for right. safety reasons. Unlike with canning, freezing, there really, there really no safety issues with it beyond the normal. Make sure your hands are clean and that sort of thing. Right, exactly. Um, you, you know, you know, you can quality might be a little different depending on you know how effectively you, you know, blanch and cool off your product, but it's not going to be unsafe. So that's also another way for people. Um, who perhaps aren't, maybe aren't, don't feel ready to try canning for whatever reason, uh-huh. they can freeze stuff. And in fact, you can even freeze jams and jellies. In fact, I do that a bit when I'm in a hurry. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't feel like getting scatter out. Right. <laughs> you know, not stuff I'm going to store for a while, but stuff that I know I'm going to eat next week anyway, so just stick it in the freezer. So, right. <laughs> so, so freezing is great that way. I mean, the only equipment it requires, obviously, is a freezer, and then if you're doing vegetables, you're going to want to blanch them. Blanch them um, yeah. Not all vegetables, but most of them. And then, you know, just freezer containers, any kind of, um, you know, the, the freezer bags or the freezer or the, you know, the other plastic containers, or you can even freeze in mason jars as long as you freeze um, in the wide mouth jars so they don't right. crack. Right. And then they're easier to get the stuff out with the wide mouth jars. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Much easier. Yeah. Much easier. So, so, so that's a good option. So how can someone learn more about how to preserve? So there are a couple of ways. So there are some great books out there that I really like um, that are kind of just great go-to books for guidance. The Ball, the Ball books, have they have a great series of books. Um, I happen to have in front of me the Ball Complete Book of Home Preserving, which I like a lot. And they also have, you know, the Ball Blue Book series. You just want to make sure you get in, if you're going to use that 
series, you want to make sure that you have an up-to-date version because right. I've seen some fall blue books from, you know, the 60s, and they the guidelines have definitely changed since then about what is considered safe canning practice. Uh-huh. So do make sure that you're using an up-to-date book. Another great resource is to go to the um, the state university cooperative extension offices. So uh-huh. most states have um, cooperative extension offices which have really solid tested recipes, information. They're very safety-focused. And so it's a great place for someone to start um, just to make sure they're doing it the right way. So a lot of places, can, you can you know print off information. And they also have a publication. Um, it's published by one of the, uh, I think it's the Cooperative Extension of Georgia, but it's called So Easy to Preserve. And um, you can get that. Many of the um, extension offices, I believe, carry that book. So that, and that's this, by the way, was the sort of like the textbook that we used in the Master Food Preserver course that I took. Right. Perfect. So that's a good one to have. Um, so and then so beyond books and website information, taking a class is a great is a great option as well. And again, the Cooperative Extensions are a great place to start looking for classes. Mm-hmm. In Maine, at least, and I imagine in many other states too, there there's such a growing interest in this subject that there seem to be more and more classes on kind of the basics of preserving and basics of canning. So I would um, just look online for for classes and contact your local extension office. Perfect. 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 So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that ferry and what you might have learned from it. Ah, okay. So, you know, there are there are many times that I have failed. There are, but it's funny. The one that the one that comes to mind first and most clearly to me actually relates to gardening as opposed to canning specifically. Mm-hmm. And I, it's it's kind of funny. When I first started gardening, I thought, oh well, you know, I can just put stuff in the soil and it'll work just it'll fine. Work just you fine. Know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not so much. <laughs> so, you know, I had spinach that was like an inch tall. And so that was the, the first time. And then I had really that same challenge ongoing. I kept thinking, okay, I'll put more in the soil. I'll put more in the soil. And so I, I um, and it's it takes a lot to make your soil healthy enough yeah. and textured such that you can grow healthy, robust crops. And so that was a lesson I think I learned a few times, meaning yeah. that, I think that, you know, I thought that I had done enough, but then I hadn't quite done enough. So the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway for me from that was just that the soil really, really needs nourishment. And maybe there are some good, maybe there are some soils out there that are already, you know, kind of perfect conditions for growing. But I personally have not come across them. I've had three different places that I've lived. I've had three different vegetable gardens that I've established from lawn, and every single one really needs a lot of help. Um, So basically, really pay attention to amending the soil and really um, doing soil tests and making sure that it has what it needs. And I keep thinking, gosh, it's got to be enough compost. It's got to be enough manure. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) But it's not, and you know, right. I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that that was those those were, I would say, some of the biggest ongoing failures, and then the biggest learning learning yeah. for me is to now finally think, wow, my beets are actually growing now. Right. Yay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'll tell you what. So. Building soil is our biggest challenge and our biggest goal as a farmer, as an urban farmer, as somebody growing food. That's absolutely the thing that we have to do. Yes, I bet, and I bet you're dealing with other issues too. With if with an urban farm situation, um, do you find that you have a lot of 
stuff in the soil that you need to that you would need that you worry about? Uh, like, sometimes, you know, around houses, there's lead. Yeah. You know, from the old paint. So I had the the soil tested here at the urban farm around the house, and yeah. we didn't find any you know significant amounts of lead. But you know, we do yeah. live we do live in an urban area in urban areas, so it's it's something yeah. to take note of yeah definitely so. yeah i find the soil tests are super helpful yeah. yeah yeah so what do you consider your biggest success i guess i would say that honestly working with my kids as they've been growing up mm-hmm. is something that i find the most rewarding and so i think in some ways i guess it's my biggest success so it's not completed yet <laughs> right uh, i feel like it's something that i feel is really important um is you know, helping kids understand, you know, why this matters, why we should know how to do this. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I started when they, with them when they were really little uh-huh. and they most, you know, they mostly like it. Actually, the preserving part, they almost always like it's the gardening that they're not always that <laughs> exactly. about. <laughs> so they, you know, so I guess I see it as a success to this point anyway of, um, having them really, they've developed a lot of skills and I feel proud of them for, you know, being able to do a lot on their own and for, you know, knowing, knowing where it comes from, knowing how to do it, most of the time liking it. And, uh, as I said, it's not, you know, it's not, (laughs) it's not a complete yet, you know, they're only eight and 10, but I hope to continue that. It feels like a really rewarding part of this for me. And, uh, and my next question is apropos then what drives you? Ah, okay. Um, yes, and it is related, certainly. I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I, I feel like it's really important for all of us to know where our food comes from, um, to know what goes into it, and to, you know, it's how we can help, you know, ensure that we're eating healthy food. And also to, you know, know how to take care of ourselves if the situation is, you know, such that, we're not at, you know, we can't buy food at the store for whatever reason. Right. Um, it's nice to be able to grow it. And, uh, and, and the other, the other piece too is that, and again, this, I guess relates to my kids is that I feel like time together, you asked me what drives me for me, it's a time that I really value with my family. It's a way yeah. of spending time, you know, families do different things together, mm-hmm. but this is a, a lot of our time is spent doing this and it feels like a way that is rewarding on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, not only are they learning, but like we're having quality family time together, which really matters to me, particularly as they're getting older, you know, and their interests are broadening and, you know, becoming maybe different than mine in many areas. This is something that we come back to, that we share, and we can kind of pick up where we left off no matter what other things they are exploring in their lives. Yeah. And so I would say that's also a big part of it um, that drives that, that drives me. Yeah. Cool. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there a book that has been influential for you in this process in your life? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this, and uh, interestingly, the ones that most come to mind are actually the ones that they've been influential in a really practical way. They've been kind of like my, you know, Bible when I've not been sure what to do. And um, a couple of them related to gardening specifically is, uh, there were two, actually, the, I love the Barbara Damrush um, garden 
promo book that she's written, and that is the one that I refer to probably more than anything else, actually, for, oh, yeah, how far am I, how far apart am I supposed to space these plants? Yeah. You know, kind of nitty stuff like that. But as a result, I find that I'm looking at that book during gardening season probably more than anything else. Oh, nice. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a, it's a great one. And, it's, and then the other one is, you know, by Elliot Coleman is the, um, I think the one I use the most of his is the Four Season Gardener, though I have a yeah. few of his. And his, uh, his books were really useful for me in first, actually largely in preparing the soil um, right. over the years and thinking, okay, what do I, how do I do this? What kind of amendments can I add? Kind of more big picture garden questions. I found his books really, really inspiring, and I continue to go back to them for that kind of thing. Perfect. So, yeah, I love those two. Perfect. So, Elliot Coleman, The Four Season yep. Gardener. Yep. And what was the other one? It, you kind of fuzzed out uh, there. Barbara Damrosh, The Garden Primer. Perfect. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say, if you have any interest in this, just get out and try it um, because it's you know it can seem it can seem overwhelming and intimidating at first mm-hmm. if you haven't done it and you don't know what you're doing. Um, it does seem that way because it did to me certainly. But I would say that the the biggest way that I learned was just by trying it out. And with the exceptions of the canning pressure canning versus boiling water bath canning, which mm-hmm. are safety issues that you want to make sure that you pay attention to. Outside of that, you know you're not there really aren't big safety issues to be concerned about. So, you know, get out there and and try it. Um, You know, put start a tiny garden, even if it's tiny. Um, Mm -hmm. Try it, get some books out, give it a shot, and you will learn so much just by doing that. Um, And I would say the same same with preserving as well, as again, with the exception of that little canning piece. But, you know, just just try it. You'll know if it's, you know, if it didn't work, you'll know differently next time, you know. It's, it's, and, you know, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it is it is physical work, so you do have to like kind of being outside and, and uh, being physical. But if you like doing that, what I like about that is that it's it's both physical work and outside, and I'm doing something productive. Right. You know, so I like the Amen combination of the two. Yeah. 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 So. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Allison. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Greg, for having me. I really enjoyed it. How can our listeners get a hold of you? I would say my website is the best uh, way. Mm-hmm. It's uh, com. Perfect. And uh, my, email, my email information is on the website. Excellent. I also want to do a shout out to Pomona Pectin. That's P-O-M-O-N-A-P-E-C-T-I-N.com. It's a great product. That is correct. It's a great, great product. And if you haven't used it for canning, absolutely jump in. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Love it. Super. Well, once again, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash canning craft. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, These 10 are must-listens. 
To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.